0: questions I've been asking myself are as follows. I mean, as an earth scientist, I think a lot about the physical earth and how it's changing, um, especially from climate change. I'm a climate scientist, um, but also through um, due to human environmental impacts. As a geographer, I think a lot about how humans make the earth their home. And there's really a fascinating progression there. If you look at the history of humanity, um, there's a fascinating progression of of a seeming separation from nature that goes back 10,000 years and is still happening in an accelerating way today. So bear, bear with me for a second. If you think back to the earliest civilizations, which really got going around 10,000 years ago their origins even earlier than that um, they formed along the river banks of the Tigris Euphrates rivers in present-day Iraq they formed along even before that along the uh, the Indus River in present-day Pakistan and in India um, and the Yellow River in China and um, a little later even here in North America pre-colonial Discovery. uh, they formed along the banks of the Mississippi River with a long-forgotten Native American civilization called the Cahokians. And the Cahokians had earthen and log pyramids. They had a vast empire spreading up and down the Mississippi River Valley. They had trade, administrative centers, and so on. Um, And as fascinating as those civilizations are, they marked a big change from what preceded it with hunter-gatherer groups. And the um, the discovery of agriculture in these hydraulic civilizations along rivers created the some of the first big inventions from society, the creation of the city-state, the creation of um, a ruling class, the uh, creation of some of our earliest human institutions, um, like engineering, uh, science, and law. They can be traced back this far. And that was the first big step, was the removal of our dependence on foraging for food and being able to survive in fixed settlements due to irrigated agriculture. From there, we moved to trade. discovered machines, industrial revolution, uh, from there to global food production and our most recent trend which has been going on for well over a century, which is urbanization with this incredible movement of people from rural areas to the countryside, or rather from the countryside to rural urban cores. In fact, A little over a decade ago, in 2008, a remarkable threshold was surpassed with regard to this phenomenon. Somewhere on Earth, a a baby was born. We'll never know exactly where or who it was or exactly when it happened, but somewhere on Earth, a baby was born and we crossed a threshold. For the first time in the history of the human species, we became urban in the majority never before had this happened and certainly well over half uh, by that time a decade plus ago well well over half had long since forgotten um, how to feed themselves how to you know, obtain water how to um, you know get clothing they, uh, they long ago seeded these most basic of Biological um, uh, requirements, you know, to our organized society, and in today in the modern world, we rely very much on um, the efforts of global supply chains and multinap- multinational corporations to provide um, our most um, these most basic of biological services to us, the urban consumer. So. I recently moved to New England from Los Angeles and um, in LA, there's a very popular food chain called Trader Joe's, which many of you know it. Um, and Trader Joe's is super popular with Angelenos, like myself, it espouses fair trade principles and um, you know, fair trade coffee and great labor practices and good benefits for their employees and, and so on. It's a wonderful company. And many of my fellow Angelinos love to shop at Trader Joe's and gasp in horror at uh, a Walmart, right? Which um, has different, slightly different philosophy with regard to its labor practices and so on. But the difference between these two companies is far less than they would appear, certainly to my neighbors. And um, both of them are reaching out around the planet to obtain goods and food items in this case, and finished goods as cheaply as possible, uh, and to route them via tightly scheduled global supply chains to us, the urban consumer. Um, They're doing the exact same thing in terms of the business model. And this model, most recently, which has really gotten going since the 1970s, is but the latest chapter in humankind's ongoing redefinition of its relationship with the physical earth. It began with our move from hunter-gatherer species as a hunter-gathering foraging species over 10,000 years ago to settled communities. From there, we consolidated more and more in, in cities we invented machines to do our workforce. This accelerated the departure of people from landscapes. Um, we went from an agricultural civilization to an urban one. Um, in the US, less than 2% of the population is engaged in agriculture today. Uh, the fields are devoid of humans and, and, and mowed by autonomous um, heavy machinery guided by GPS. The, um, the advent of trade, first locally and then globally, has redistributed the way materials are circulated around the globe. Um, our move to a global food model only accelerated that. And now um, the trend has been very much to concentrate in urban cores. So the while the world population is still growing, rural areas are um, either um for the most part, depending on where you look, of course, are in uh, many places, the populations are either stable or actually depopulating and losing people. And um, depending on what happens with the remaining, you know, the land that's left behind, um, this can sometimes be good for nature with rewilding of forests and the return of, of species that have been extirpated there from the, from the past. And a wonderful example of this uh, is all around me here in, in New England. Uh, this is a landscape that was, of course, at first dammed up uh, everywhere. Every little river and stream of any substance was dammed to make mill races for the Industrial Revolution. The forests were cut down. Um, the whole area was covered with hard scrabble farms and pasture. Uh, beavers and fish and other forms of wildlife were extirpated. Um, and now, in the year 2020, the place is regrown with thick forests. There are beavers all over the place, and um, while highly suburban, uh, most of the human activities are taking place in the city, with um, much milder impact upon the surrounding local environment than um, you know has happened in this area for for hundreds of years. Of course, those impacts. The environmental impacts of that urban activity are now global with climate change. Um, This is a topic I really spend most of my time on for my day job. I'm an Arctic climate change uh, scientist. I do a lot of work in Greenland and Siberia, Northern Alaska, and so on. Um, Looking ahead, um, I wonder a lot about how this, changing relationship between humans and the physical earth will continue to change. Um, I wonder if we will burn the remaining reserves of fossil fuel, which is the track we're currently on, or will we leave it in the ground? I wonder if we will defend our coasts from sea level rise or if we will retreat from them. If we do, and I wonder if we do retreat, what will be the nature of that retreat? Will it happen in an orderly way or will it take um, major storm surge events like we've already seen with Superstorm Sandy, for example, to render areas suddenly uh, uneconomic or unbuildable or has happened um, with Hurricane Katrina along Many, many miles of the Gulf Coast. I wonder if we will geoengineer our climate. There are a number of proposals for this. The idea, in just the last, you know, ten years, this idea, even among scientists, earth scientists like myself, this idea has gone from being, you know, kind of an outlandish concept to one that is being taken um, with increasing uh, gravitas as the national and international level effort um, continues to, to fumble and, and falter uh, to, to effort to um, slow the pace of climate change at the international level continues to fumble and falter. I wonder I wonder if humans will take control or partial control, of evolutionary processes and begin to direct evolution through synthetic biology. That is, I, I'm, I'm, my interest in my interest, my own interest in synthetic biology, extend especially to the modification of of um, plants, um, modification of plants for human food, potentially the modification of human plants as a mitigator of climate change through carbon sequestration. And I wonder what the implications of this, this may be. I, I, I really am astounded to think what kind of um, life experiences my three small kids uh, will encounter as they go through the next 80 to 90 years, particularly in this area of synthetic biology. I, I speculate that the changes they will see will be uh, in their generation will be even more dramatic than the ones um, I've seen through the information revolution of the last 40 to 50 years. I wonder if we will populate the Arctic. This is a place that could, that is continuing to warm um, and not, not that it'll ever be warm in the wintertime. Of course, it's the Arctic, the polar night will always return but it is also a place that um, has a great deal of fossil fuel energy that is not currently developed. And should we stay in the path of fossil fuel development, it is an area that is likely to be um, accessed and used for this purpose. And we're already seeing that in places like northern Siberia, the north slope of Alaska, the oil sands or tar sands, depending on your point of view, of of, um, Alberta uh, and Canada of Northern Alberta. So I wonder if our long trend, lurching trend of global integration, which has its roots in the wreckage of post-World War II, beginning with the Bretton Woods Agreement, I wonder if that long lurching global integration Will stop and will reverse. Certainly, recent years have, developments of the very recent years have um, suggested this is possible without getting into the, the politics of it, but the Brexit is a prime example of it. Um, there are many indications around the world that this um, ideology is uh, maybe changing, and it is quite plausible that we could deglobalize moving forward. I wonder if the current COVID-19 pandemic uh, could inspire, or either inspire, or w- I wonder if the current COVID-19 pandemic will either deter or inspire um, use of biowarfare. Biowarfare is the most has long been the most untouchable and covert form of warfare, been around forever. It's an old idea, of course, but has always been considered untouchable by national actors. And I would hope it would continue to be. But it it is fascinating to wonder as the COVID-19 pandemic um, continues, which is the, the biggest experiment of its kind unleashed on. Civilization since 1918, over 100 years ago. I, I do wonder um, to what extent it could inspire bio warfare in the future, particularly along non-state actors such as terrorist groups. And finally, I wonder what, um, looking even more broadly, I wonder whether we might, in future decades, consider dispersing life off of the Earth. And if so, what kinds of um, lessons might be learned from the dispersion of life on this earth at human hands. So those are just a few of the things I've been thinking about with all my time off. For over 25 years now, my climate change research has drawn me north to the arctic and subarctic. These are the the ice sheets and glaciers and permafrost lands and seas of, of Alaska, northern Canada, Iceland, Greenland, Siberia, northern most, the northernmost Nordic states. And the reason I and my graduate students spend so much time working up there through field studies and satellite remote sensing is because the Arctic is one of the most rapidly transforming regions on Earth, both from amplification of global uh, climate change as well as human pressures that are unique and operating within the region itself. And uh, let's start with the first one. The, The Arctic, Unlike Antarctica, uh, experiences greatly amplified increases in climate warming um, that are larger than the global mean temperature increase. And unlike Antarctica, and whenever the um, the planet warms up by you know a degree on average, that one degree average is actually masking some profoundly different geographical uh, contrasts around the Earth with the Arctic experiencing well over double the, um, the global mean average rate. And um, the reasons for this are not mysterious. We, we understand them quite well. There are a number of geophysical feedbacks that operate uh, within the region that are present in the Arctic, but not present in Antarctica, for example. Um, the biggest one and most famous of these natural feedbacks is the geography of, of the region. The, unlike Antarctica, which is a continent buried under very thick ice, over a mile of ice, uh, that is very ancient, over a million years old, the Arctic, uh, the, the geography of the Arctic, is consists of an ocean surrounded by land. In fact, massive amounts of land, with the largest uh, land mass on planet, uh, found in the um, the northern high latitudes. The uh, it's where two of our biggest countries are Russia and Canada, for example. And the fact that there is an ocean there, surrounded by land, rather than a continent surrounded by ocean, gives rise to what's called the ice albedo ice albedo feedback. Um, meaning, the, the way it operates is the, um, the albedo or reflectivity of a dark ocean is much lower than that of ice and snow, which is highly reflective. And the ocean always freezes in winter, and hopefully always will. Because remember, um, it's the polar regions will always have polar night uh, in the wintertime. And so the ice, no matter how warm it gets in the summer, ice will always refreeze in, in the winter. And The Arctic Ocean freezes over in the uh, wintertime and begins to melt back from its edges during the summertime, uh, reaching its minimum, its sort of minimum seasonal extent uh, in late September. And the extent of that minimal summertime sea ice cover in the Arctic Ocean has been steadily declining ever since NASA first started mapping it using passive microwave satellites in, in the late 1970s. It, the maximum uh, seasonal extent of ice cover in the Arctic Ocean has declined by about 40%, over 40% since the late 1970s. And this causes the reflectivity of the surface of the planet up there to decrease because as that ice melts back, it exposes a darker ocean which absorbs more of the incoming solar light. So rather than being reflected back to space, that energy is absorbed by the ocean, which warms the ocean water and retains heat within the system, which is then uh, re-released throughout the year. So this is one of several feedbacks operating in the Arctic, which are are unique to the Arctic, and cause the place to um, to uh, to experience amplified climate change. Now importantly, this feedback works in the opposite direction as well. So when the Earth enters periods of global cooling, such as during um, ice age oscillations, and um, when global temperatures decrease, the Arctic will plunge. Temperatures in the Arctic will plunge more than double the uh, global average. So it is a highly amplified system. From a human presence and development point of view, the Arctic and Antarctica couldn't. Be more different. The, the Arctic land masses are under the political control of eight sovereign nations. They belong to those countries, these territories and adjacent seas, uh, namely the United States, Canada, uh, Greenland, which is an autonomous region of Denmark, uh, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia. Antarctica, in contrast to the Arctic, is totally different in its political organization. It is uh, shared among nations, and the entry key to um, having you know participation is the expenditure of funds on science and maintaining science camps in Antarctica. So, Antarctica is a fascinating place because. Many countries want to be involved with Antarctica for geopolitical reasons, but the only allowable way in which this can manifest is through the funding of science in Antarctica. So it's wonderful. As a scientist, I think it's it's absolutely, absolutely wonderful. But the, 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 um, the governance situation, it couldn't be more different. Um, the Arctic being comprised of sovereign nations, Um, is governed by the rules of those sovereign nations and offshore is governed by uh, a very important piece of international law called the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which governs the um, offshore economic exclusive economic zones of all signatory nations at 200 nautical miles, and through a provision within this piece of international law called Article 76, signatory nations can Petition to extend their offshore sovereignty um, through su- scientific mapping and geological studies if they can establish that the seafloor is a natural extension of that continent's uh, continental shelf. And it just so happens, due to the geography of the Arctic Ocean, it's a very it's a fairly small ocean and very shallow. Um, and as, as a result, most, if not virtually all, of the Arctic Ocean either already has been or soon will be partitioned between five Arctic countries that abut onto the Arctic Ocean, um, perhaps even the North Pole itself. Uh, the biggest beneficiary of this is Russia, um, Canada, also Greenland, the autonomous region of, of Denmark. Um, the United States and Sweden and Norway also have some, some claim to the area. So when you couple that governance structure with the extensive potential reserves of natural gas, condensate, and oil in this region, the development prospects for this remote, iconic part of the world are um, huge over, over the long term. Not in the short term. Uh, Low oil is a very, very difficult place to operate, Uh, very expensive, very environmentally fraught. Um, Many national and multinational oil companies have attempted to operate in the Arctic and have have failed or have withdrawn. But over the long term, should current trends continue as they are now, and I I hope they don't, but should they? Uh, There is little question. That this, the pressures to develop the fossil fuel reserves of the Arctic and subarctic will be immense, and uh, in fact has already begun uh, in Western Siberia, where the decades-long oil and gas development of Western Siberia by the Russian Federation, beginning in the 60s when it was the USSR, have now expanded north to the Yamal Peninsula, uh, where in 2017. The Putin administration opened up a um, liquefied natural gas LNG plant uh, at Sabeta on the, on the coast of the Yamal Peninsula. So it is, has already begun there. And in North America, of course, we have the ongoing uh, bumpy, depending on the price of oil, um, bumpy development of the, um, the oil sands or tar sands, depending on your point of view, uh, in, um, in northern Canada. So the climate changes happening in the arctic are more extreme than the climate changes in even in antarctica which is also undergoing tremendous um, warming and the development potential and pressures and governance are totally different between the arctic and antarctica and this is why we are um, why we see such an asymmetric um, sort of Two asymmetric spheres of activity and interest taking place in these two very important and iconic regions. I, I will hasten to say, however, that the single greatest uncertainty in global sea level rise risk does come from Antarctica, which is why the reason it is um, under acute and you know scientific scrutiny and study. And this is because a large um, fraction of that ice mass is grounded on the continent below sea level rise. And it is also ringed by large, thick ice shelves that buttress glacial ice up on the land. And as those, if those ice shelves disintegrate, which they're prone to do when ocean water is warm, their ability to buttress the land ice up on top of the continent goes away. If you remove the plug at the bottom, then the land ice can flow Right down to the ocean, and this is quite a frightening possibility. Uh, we don't understand the processes involved very well. Our ice dynamics models are not well calibrated because we don't understand all of the tensile um, physics that are found along the interaction of this of the glacial bed with the overlying ice and The interaction of those physics with the buttressing effect and and ocean temperatures at the ice edge are are you know they're present in the models but our models are not calibrated well enough to really be able to know uh if and when this might happen so it 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 creates a a big error bar in our uncertainty about how fast and how high sea level may rise uh, by the end of this century there is the sort of collective body of wisdom gets summarized every few years with the United Nations IPCC reports, um, which are notoriously conservative and slow in their assessments. That's understandable. It's because they are are consensus documents that have to be signed off on by by governments. Um, But the uh, most recent IPCC release, which just came out in September, has significantly upgraded their risk potential for sea level rise you know, to be as high anywhere from 30 centimeters to 1.1 meters by the end of this century. And again, it must be kept in mind that this is a conservative, conservative um, document. And the um, much of that, uh, the, the reason for such a large range comes from uncertainty surrounding the stability of the West Antarctic ice sheet. Some of the most exciting research I'm doing together with my my graduate students and postdocs and collaborators is improving our ability to model and predict how much sea level rise will come out of the Greenland ice sheet and next time you next the next time you look at a world map or globe have a look at the Greenland ice sheet and look at its latitude and you should be struck by The oddity of it even existing at all. Here we have this massive ice sheet coming to quite low latitude, um, sticking up, an ice sheet sticking up above everything else. It's really quite out of place, unlike, say, the Antarctic ice sheet, which is, you know, perched right at the bottom of the Earth on the South Pole. And in fact, the The Greenland Ice Sheet is a relic of the last Ice Age. It survives only by virtue of its own elevation. And what I mean by that is if you were to somehow magically pluck the Greenland Ice Sheet off of the bedrock, it would not reform and grow. It it just would not come back. Uh, The reason it persists at all is because it's already there. And therefore, at its higher elevations at the summit, the temperatures, the, the, uh, the elevations are sufficiently high that the temperatures do not go above uh, freezing during the summertime. Just like when you get an airplane and you go up, the temperatures get cold. So there's a very strong um, decrease in air temperature as you move up through the troposphere. So uh, uh, this is what allows the Greenland Ice Sheet to exist. Now, it does melt extensively, around its lower elevations along the margins. And so when and and this is the area that is ground zero for Greenland's contribution of meltwater runoff uh, to the ocean. And ground zero for the single biggest component of um, sea level rise contribution uh, from Greenland to the, the rest of the world, a little present from Greenland if you will. And the extent and intensity of this melt zone around the edges of Greenland have been dramatically increasing um, pretty much every year, quite quite steadily. I mean, it's bumpy. Some years are cooler, some years are warmer. But the overall secular trend is one of, of increasing melt and mass transfer from the Greenland ice sheet uh, to the ocean, where it contributes um, about a third of global sea level rise at this time, over a millimeter per year is coming just from the Greenland ice sheet. Um, and so my team and I have been pushing this science forward by studying this melt zone. And surprisingly, uh, and until quite recently, this area received light scientific study. Uh, most ice sheet um, scientists and field expeditions uh, focus on drilling camps uh, up at up at the top in the cold zone uh, where since it doesn't melt the ice core record is preserved and these are amazing places to drill two miles down into the ice all the way to the bed and pull out a two mile long time machine of past uh, climatic changes over over geological history the um, the melt zone along the edge gets um, is, is a real mess. I mean, it melts every summer. Um, it uh, you know if you try to envision it, just imagine a vast slick and slide water park where uh, sure it snows over in the winter time, but come June the whole place starts to melt. It's crisscrossed everywhere with torrential flowing blue streams and. Um, trickles that come together into streams, which which come together into these great branching arterial river networks flowing over the top of the Greenland ice sheet. And every single one of these torrential blue rivers um, in Southwest Greenland, which is the most intensive area where this smelting is taking place, virtually all of them, Travel for a few kilometers over the ice before breaching through the ice into a sort of sinkhole called a moulin, and from there it tunnels under the ice and out to the ice edge where it goes uh, right into the ocean, thus contributing to global sea level rise. And the um, this this is where this is where you know 90% of the runoff from the Greenland ice sheet to the ocean is coming from. Um, It is, so modeling this melting process and sea level rise contribution process correctly is imperative if we are to be able to forecast with reasonable accuracy the anticipated rate of sea level rise in the future. And amazingly, until um, the work of our group, the no testing or validation of the climate models that operate for this purpose had ever been conducted um, for Greenland before. So beginning in 2012 and for, and for many summers ever since, um, I and my team have been helicoptering onto the Greenland ice sheet in this fantastical melt zone where we uh, string, use helicopters the string cableways over the top of these rushing superglacial rivers uh, and hang um, a, a um, river discharge measurement technology called Acoustic Doppler Current Profiler, uh, or ADCP, uh, on these cableways. And we operate around the clock, uh, working to collect measurements of river discharge every hour, 24 hours uh, a day around the clock for up to a week in duration. And through these measurements, we have collected the world's first meltwater runoff measurements on top of the ice sheet. And what we then do is simultaneously use drones and satellites to map out the upstream contributing watershed area flowing to that point uh, where we are collecting the discharge measurements. And when we know the contributing watershed area and we have the runoff, the flow measurements at the bottom of the watershed, we then have a completely independent field data set from which we can test the uh, ability of climate models to to um, model or to simulate uh, meltwater runoff from the Greenland ice sheet. And it's those models that are being used to predict the future. And it's, there, it's these models that are being used to um, estimate um, projected ranges of. Sea level rise in um, ipcc reports and, and so forth and so the the field work of course is is it's incredible uh we, we we camp on the melting ice we pitch tents on top of the melting ice there's water running everywhere uh the tents need to be repitched every couple of days because the ice surface is melting all around us so we've wherever you pitch your tent on one particular day. Uh, that is shaded from the sun, so the melt, ice melts around it. And after a few days, the tent is perched up on a little knoll and is tilting around and so forth. Um, the entire camp, need, we, we have to take, we, we of course take safety precautions very, very seriously. Um, if anyone were to slip into one of these streams, they would be uh, washed away because the, uh, the water is super cooled. It's about zero degrees Celsius. Uh, there's nothing to grab onto, they're just fast flowing shoots that have melted into the ice. There are no rocks, no trees, no branches, there's nothing to grab onto. And as I said before, every single one of these streams and rivers runs into, uh, flows into Amulan, which then thunders its way down to the base of the ice sheet. So if everyone ever were to slip and fall into one of these things, they would not be recovered. Uh, So as a result, to work in this environment. It's quite possible to work very safely in this environment, but there are many precautions that we must take. We first thing uh, we do is we encircle the entire campsite with yellow caution tape, and no one is permitted to leave that small area of ice uh, unless they are tethered into a rope. And, another per- and this is flat. This is not mountaineering. The place is just flat and crisscrossed by streams. But nonetheless, when someone uh, goes outside that camp perimeter, they um, wear mountaineering harnesses and and, uh, latch into a rope, which a partner then feeds out a line from. And then the scientist goes to the edge of the river where the cableway is and the ADCP and collects the measurements, towing the instrument back and forth across the river while someone else is making sure that that rope, which is really a leash, is never long enough for them to even possibly fall into the river in the first place. The rope is kept tight enough that that is physically impossible. So we've been con- con- collecting these types of measurements for for several years, and the public the the findings are just now coming out. And there's um I'll, I'll tell you some of the preliminary results. I'm actually working on one of the papers right now. The um, the there's good news and bad news. The bad news is that the meltwater generated by melting across this area of southwest Greenland, unfortunately, virtually all of it escapes the ice sheet to the ocean. We were hoping to find that, yes, the ice melts, but the meltwater would be somehow retained up on top of the ice sheet. Maybe it would collect in little lakes and pools and just refreeze. Maybe it would uh, soak into the cracks in the ice and refreeze and stay there. You know, it it would be wonderful from a sea level rise point of view if the meltwater that is produced by warmer temperatures over the ice would um, somehow remain or be trapped or refrozen within the ice sheet itself. In such a case, we might expect the ice sheet to lower but also become denser uh, and not lose all of the mass to the ocean. Uh, unfortunately, our satellite mapping and measurements confirm that this is not the case, and that the surface of the Greenland ice sheet is amazingly efficient at losing all of the meltwater that drains, uh, that that forms on its surface through these networks of hundreds of rivers flowing over the ice. That's the bad news. The good news is that in study after study, the, from our measurements, we have shown that the current generation of climate models uh, that are used in this area are almost without exception overestimating the amount of meltwater that is um, produced by, you know, on the order of sort of 10, anywhere from 10 to as high as 50%. Um, that's good news in the sense that these, some of the dire prediction, the dire risk predictions of runoff contributions of sea level rise or to sea level rise from Greenland are, are a little too high. And we're digging right now into the reasons for this. Um, it may be, one possibility is the models um, are, are overestimating for reasons pertaining to energy balance. The other more likely reason is that some of the water is indeed being trapped within a sort of rotten zone. It's called rotten ice on the on top of the ice surface. It's a very fragmented, porous, rotty looking ice that appears to be storing and retaining some of the water. But uh, that finding that missing fraction of overestimation is what we're working on now. But More generally, the take-home message is that it is um, uh, both exciting and scientifically critical to get boots on the ground into the field um, to test and verify uh, these climate models, which are becoming, um, of course, an increasingly critical tool uh, for us to plan and um, project and to plan for the future. Yet, I had always been interested in snow and ice and rivers, uh, in no small part due to my dad, who is a uh, very highly respected um, uh, earth scientist. And um, we would spend our uh, summers in the Canadian Rockies uh, visiting his field sites. And he was interested in the uh, actually meltwater streams and rivers draining Glaciers in the uh, in the Canadian Cordillera. So uh, in the, the summer times, we would pack up the station wagon with my brother, our dog, my mom, and my dad, and drive the thing from downtown Chicago, where I lived a very urban, uh, gritty downtown life, uh, up to the Canadian Rockies, where we would camp and live in cabins for a couple months out of the year. Um, Doing scientific fieldwork around these beautiful uh, meltwater streams and lakes and rivers in the Canadian Rockies, so that had always interested me. And when I, um, after a, a one-year stint with the U.S. Geological Survey uh, after my master's degree, uh, when I rediscovered that I liked school even better than the regular hours of a of a nine-to-five job, I. Um, applied to Cornell University's uh, Earth Science Department and uh, began a PhD there. And it was at Cornell and the Earth Sciences Department where my real um, transformation as a scientist began. Um, First, there was the access, at an institution like Cornell, the access to Really big minds and thinkers is, uh, and it becomes an everyday occurrence through, for example, through guest lectures and colloquia from visiting, um, eminent visiting scientists. And uh, Richard Alley was visiting Cornell to speak about his latest work, which had just come out in Nature, which used ice cores from the Greenland ice sheet to show how global climate, or more specifically, North Atlantic climate, at the end of the uh, Younger Dryas cold snap, which was a, a, a brief relapse into ice age temperatures that happened just as North America was pulling, as the world was pulling out of the last ice age, it was warming up, it was warming up, and suddenly, almost instantly, the ice core record showed that the temperatures dropped. Went plunged back into uh, cold, uh, you know, ice age type temperatures, then stayed cold for a while, then warmed, cold, warm, cold, warm, cold, and chooom, jumped out and continued on its warming trend. And so the, uh, the temperature swings were dramatic on the orders of several degrees uh, happening in a couple of years, perhaps even within a single year. It was absolutely astounding work published in Nature. And uh, Richard Alley was the lead author of that work and a very famous person he came to Cornell, he gave a, uh, a lecture on it, and then as is customary with these types of academic visits, um, his uh, there was a sign-up sheet to meet with him, and even lowly graduate students such as myself uh, were permitted to spend, you know, 30 minutes with him um, talking about whatever. So I um, nabbed one of those spots with Richard and, you know, was prepared, you know, very much looking forward to that. Hearing him talk about himself and his, uh, you know, his discovery and how he got there and so forth, and to my um, amazement, he um, didn't want to talk about any of that. He insisted upon talking about me and my projects and what was I working on. And at the moment, I was working on something which was very hot at the time called uh, wavelet transforms. It's a mathematical uh, tool, mathematical filter for time series analysis. And um, I was almost embarrassed to talk to him about it, but he pressed and insisted. And before I know it, I mean, he, um, we had a, we ran over time. He was late for his next appointment, and we had just spent had this very stimulating, exciting conversation back and forth. So what I learned from that encounter is that, you know, many of our greatest scientists um, are, are just perpetually curious. It doesn't matter who they speak to; they're always hungry to learn, always excited to hear new ideas, and um, interested in engaging. And discussing them uh, more than you know, talking about their accomplishments, which was which was just just fantastic. Um, the other um, formative experience I had at Cornell was running into the culture of that Earth Science Department, which was founded by um not founded, but the Earth Earth Sciences at Cornell at that time was populated by some towering giants in the field of tectonics, including my own advisor. His name is Brian Isaacs. He and his advisor, Jack Oliver, at um, Lamont-Doherty Earth Observatory, uh, which is part of Columbia University in New York, discovered plate tectonics in the 1960s. And when I say discovered plate tectonics, what I mean is that Brian, then a graduate student, and his advisor assembled the data sets that made it all come together and collected some of them and assembled them and, and finally stitched together, pulled together the pieces of the puzzle that um, revealed the existence of plate tectonics on Earth. And they saw the, the, the data set, the main data sets they looked at were magnetic reversal stripes on which are have matching sets on either side of of um, of spreading ridges in the ocean and the epicenters of earthquakes. And um, the the story, as I heard it told, was that Brian Isaacs and his advisor were standing in the advisor's office at Lamont-Doherty in New York, and sketching on a blackboard with little X's the locations of the epicenters of earthquakes near us, what we now know to be a a subducting zone where one piece of continental crust is plunging beneath another, and Brian and uh, his advisor Jack were—I um, wasn't there, obviously—but as I heard the story told, were plotting these little epicenters, little X's, and then they were going down, down, and down, and down, and puzzling and musing over these. And then Brian, you know, suddenly blurted out, "It's going down. The crust is going down. It's getting one is getting dragged beneath the other." And at that moment, it all finally became clear that. The Earth's crust was being born at the, um, the spreading center ridges in the oceans, and the magnetic reversals were capturing that slow growth over time. And then they were being uh, subsumed and plunging uh, on the other end and they're in the death zone, where uh, one plate was subducting beneath another. Um, they arrived at this idea mutually. They flipped the coin over who would write the paper, uh, or who would be lead author on the paper, uh, my advisor Brian won, and he got to be lead author, and the lead author on the paper that put together for the first time the, the, the theory of plate tectonics, which launched a revolution in the earth sciences that is still uh, kind of in the mop-up phases today. The um, the benefit to me from working at Cornell was that because of this. Um, because of this legacy with Brian Isaacs' works and also Jack Oliver, because the, both of them then, both Jack Oliver and Brian Isaacs then moved to Cornell University to the Earth Sciences Department, and they brought with them a whole cohort of big thinkers in plate tectonics who, for the first time, re- were really looking at the Earth at the very, very broadest possible scale to get big-picture understanding of the Earth of the Earth system, um, and. By its very nature, plate tectonics demands that kind of perspective. So when I arrived there in the 1990s, I brought with me a very small field-oriented mindset um, where I wanted to take a very small watershed and study it and understand all these detailed little processes. And uh, my advisor and committee there pretty much um, beat me up over that and said, this is Cornell University. We think big. We think big. We think big. You have to broaden yourself out, and so that's when that was the beginning of my um, sort of transformation from thinking very small about the Earth sciences and the wonders that it entails, all the wonders that it entails, to also try to step back and, and to uh, to gain very broad scale um, theoretical and observational knowledge of, of the of the Earth that. The, the largest possible scales, and this is one reason why I now work. My research spans everything from sort of broad Arctic change to to societies um, and to you know the humans and, and the way we make the Earth our home. The um, the other very influential person on my career was um, a colleague at UCLA in the geography department um, named Jared Diamond. Jared Diamond was enormously influential on me. Uh, first of all, I had, um, well, the story goes like this. The, my first or second year at UCLA as an assistant professor in the geography department, I was put in charge of the moribund colloquium program, which had few speakers, and no one would attend the talks. I was told I had to revive it and that there was no money to bring in speakers. I had a budget of $0. I said, all right, UCLA is a pretty good school. I think there are some good speakers here. Perhaps we could invite them to the geography department to speak to us. So I had heard of Louis Ignaro, who had just won a Nobel Prize in medicine. And I had heard of um, Jared Diamond, who at that time was um, in the medical school at UCLA. I rang up both of their offices and reached their administrative assistants, left messages with them. Um, A few days later, the administrative assistant for Louis Ignaro called me back and told me, yes, Dr. Ignaro would be delighted to speak to the Geography Department. Uh, There would be a speaking fee of $10,000. Around the same time, Jared Diamond called me back personally and said, he would be delighted to speak to the geography department, period. So we scheduled him and a few weeks or months later, he came and gave a talk based on guns, germs, and seal. And the book had either just come out or was just about to come out. And many of the ideas in that book are highly geographical. The talk was great, the faculty hung around for what is probably the longest Q&A session I have ever witnessed. Went for about 45 minutes. Fantastic back and forth between Jared and um, my colleagues. He had a wonderful time. We had a wonderful time. And a few months later, we got a query about from Jared about the possibility of transferring to the geography department at UCLA. So, I was not part of those discussions. I was just a starting assistant professor, but I like to I, I like to take some credit for um, enticing Jared to um, to geography at UCLA and, and leaving the medical school. Um, Jared left me alone until uh, you know through until I got tenure, and I established my core research working with field studies and remote sensing in West Siberia. Iceland, Alaska but after um, after I reset, received tenure he really encouraged me once again uh, a influential person on me encouraged me to think a little more broadly um, even beyond the the hard earth sciences and I had um, read Jared's books. I was very inspired uh, and excited by his synthetic way of thinking. I I really value the way he looks across different disciplines and tries to find common threads and, and pull them together and is um you know does not hesitate to to learn from other fields even if they're you know a, a bit far from his core academic research. So that has inspired some of my own uh, efforts with my own writings outside of my core science. So I would really say those those two individuals um were extremely influential upon me uh, among this, along this uh, academic career and intellectual career that I'm still on. I look forward to meeting the next person.